Building a monitoring system is a complex distributed systems problem. Events are produced from different points in an application, and they must be aggregated in order to form metrics. These events are often ingested by a time series database, which forms the backbone of our monitoring system. Theo Schlossnagel is the CEO of Circonus, where he has been working on architecting the company's monitoring software for six years. In this episode, we talk about how to build a monitoring system and a monitoring company and the requirements for the underlying time series database, as well as what monitoring even is. I really enjoyed talking to Theo. He has a lot of experience with distributed systems, both in academia and in business, and it's a pretty wide-ranging conversation going from distributed systems to applied distributed systems um, to just the state of software engineering and software architecture. Theo Schlossnagel is the CEO of Circonus. Theo, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me. So in 2006, you wrote a book about scalable internet architectures, and it has been a decade since then. We're talking in 2016. What did a scalable internet architecture look like in 2006, and how have the concerns that we are dealing with changed? That's a, that's, that's a really great question. Um, I think that uh, surprisingly... That book has, uh, you know, stood the test of time fairly well, and and the information in there is still really applicable. Um, it talks about high-level concepts of of scaling systems, uh, the differences between scaling and performance, what resiliency and redundancy mean, um, what do, what do backups and monitoring look like. Um, so I think that that really what's changed is the mechanisms and methodologies with which uh, that, that we use to build the systems. So the the prevalence of API-driven infrastructure um, and the uh, the introduction of everything becoming a distributed systems uh, problem uh, has has changed since then. Yeah, and you know you did distributed systems research in university. There, we do a lot of shows on distributed systems. Um, how how do the distributed systems discussions that take place in university or that that were that were taking place in university when you were going to school? How do those compare to the conversations around quote distributed systems in the real world? I mean, the distributed system has become such a loaded term because it's it's almost like saying the word computer at this point. It, it is um, so. Well, I spent a, a long time studying distributed systems, and I'll say that the big difference between discussions in academia, probably on any subject, and discussions in injury, uh, industry, especially as it goes kind of down stack to, to even the most junior engineers that have to deal with it, um, it, it really revolves around rigor. Right, so distributed systems in academia have a tremendous amount of rigor around how they're explored, um, how they're quantified, um, how they're described, how they're solved. Um, Generally speaking, the code people write in academia is atrocious, um, but the, but the the framing of the problem and the accuracy and understanding of the solution just have a tremendous amount of rigor. And I, I think that while in industry people tend to uh, high quality code is much more uh, readily available and achievable in industry, uh, I think that they're they're just throwing things at a wall when it comes to actually solving. Uh, the distributed nature of the problems that they encounter. I remember taking distributed systems in college. I took it the last 
the last semester of school and I thought that I was going to fail the class and I thought I was just not going to graduate. It was the most painful class I have taken because of that rigor that you're talking about. Because you have to do these proofs that things are going to work out the way you expect they're going to work. And I think the fundamental, I think what fundamentally made many of those proofs so hard is you basically assume the worst case scenario in every single um, every single outcome, every single proof that you're doing. You assume that there is some malicious server that's going to, to mess you up uh, and it is like the worst actor possible. Why is that? Why is that an aspect of distributed systems theory? Um, well, uh, it, the problems become... So it's kind of like the difference between physics and electrical engineering. Uh, physics is all about the beautiful equations, and you know the flux through a through a sphere is always zero. Um, electrical engineering is about circuits frying and, and things actually working in the real world. Um, so in academia, the the problems are easier to frame when when they're uh, simple. And I would say that understanding that any component in the system can be Byzantine uh, is a simple statement. Uh, it, and it provides a lot of really interesting challenges for, for academic uh, computer scientists. Um, so I think that the real interesting Byzantine part is where meaning infinitely malicious. Yeah, Byzantine meaning uh, someone who is ac- actively uncooperative. Yeah. Right. So, um, and, and the truth is, is that systems in general are not actively uncooperative as long as you're outside of the security realm. There's an argument that security realm could be uh, like universally useful uh, in, in, in all software. But I, I think the interesting part is where academia and, and, and practice collide, right? So you need an academic rigor when approaching problems, but you need industry to inform about when compromises are acceptable. And that's when you get really fantastic operable software is, is when you have a, a academic rigor to approach the problems, but you're allowed to remove problems from, from the problem set based on uh, in, industrial experience. And you also get really good papers. I mean, I remember the papers that we read in that class, the ones that were purely theoretical, like the, the Paxos papers, I was just like, I can't read this. But the, you know, when we read you're like... You're not di- alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it's funny. I, 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 th- I think that story about how the the I think the Paxos paper wasn't originally accepted to ACM because they were like this is incomprehensible, and then later on they figure out like oh this is actually the backbone of distributed systems, um, but it was funny because the the papers that we read from industry like Dynamo or MapReduce or whatever else um, Big Table I think those were so much more readable and so much more just so much more fun to read and so much more reassuring that oh thankfully we're not always on this mythical greek island where everything goes wrong yes yes i am in the u.s right now it feels a little bit like that (laughs) so (laughs) so getting this conversation towards the industry and what you are doing uh you know we're talking about distributed systems and how that translates to industry and so you you always have this you know this assumption that things can be byzantine things can go wrong so at a high level, what are the ways that the fundamental nature of distributed systems make it hard to build a a truthful monitoring service? Because Circonus is a monitoring company and you are monitoring distributed systems. So what are the fundamental ways in which that is, that is quite difficult? Yeah, so uh, I actually think that 
that there are some aspects of monitoring in general that lend itself towards the easy sides of distributed systems problems. Um, uh, distributed databases in general are uh, incredibly challenging because of all of the the cases that you have to solve for. You know, what if two two different nodes make two conflicting changes at the same time? Uh, how do you resolve that dispute? How do you sort them both? Um, there's a lot of fantastic research in that area. But the interesting part is that when you're observing a system, um, you've observed it. It's done. There's, there's, there's not really a lot of conflict possible. So if someone reports uh, that, that their CPU idle consumption is at this many clock ticks, it's not like they can unreport that later. So a lot of the data inflow into a monitoring system has uh, has uh, immutable properties, right? It's 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 write once uh, and and read forever. Um, so you don't have to handle a lot of different uh, typical database operations, um, which meant that in our distributed system, uh, our distributed time series database, we were able to um, create a database that only processes commutative operations. And this is where you can go back into, into academia and say, let me prove that the set of operations that are allowable in my database are commutative. And if I can do that, and I can skip all of these really complex distributed systems problems. Um, and then the software becomes very easy to operate. Uh, it's very resilient to failure. Uh, and then you kind of like, you don't break out in a cold sweat at night to all the, all the, the challenging Byzantine problems that you elected not to deal with that might happen anyway. Commutative meaning the ordering of events is less important? Correct. The ordering of events doesn't doesn't matter for the correctness. So if you you know apply ABC on one box and then ACB on the other, uh, they will result in the same same outcome. Um, yeah. So, so that's powerful. Definitely. So how? I, I don't want to get into that. I want to get into the time series database in more detail. But uh, let's let's do a simple definitional uh, exercise. Um, I've asked a couple people who have come on recently this question how do you define monitoring what does that term mean well that's a really interesting question as well and i I, uh i'm not sure i've arrived at an answer to that um our chief data scientist here uh, has kind of started an rfc process around the definition of monitoring and i think it got a pretty good traction Um, but the idea is being able to observe the behavior of systems and check for their correctness Hmm. it's a pretty pretty large scale thing and I think monitoring is very wide and encompasses a lot of things uh, and at Circonus we, we really only tackle uh, a very uh, I wouldn't say it's super narrow but we, we do not tackle that entire space mm. um, we, we tackle telemetry analysis um, take that at high volume but there's you know systems emit logs that may describe whether or not they're they're, they're running um, to spec uh, they may um, uh, have complex uh, distributed coordination required where some sort of global time clock and, and distributed tracing framework is required as well to, to, to show that they're malfunctioning. Um, and those challenges, we don't, we don't really look at those. Ah, okay. Well, uh, so, but speaking broadly, I mean, obviously there are lots of monitoring products. They're tackling different areas of this monitoring um, cornucopia of things that you described what are the broad requirements for a monitoring system? Like, regardless of what, I guess, what domain you're tackling, what are the things? I mean, maybe we want to talk about events. You want to talk about, like, logs being translated into events, being translated into metrics. But what are the commonalities 
for a monitoring product? Uh, I, they need to record to record an observation of a running system, hmm. right? So that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. Uh, but I think that that there are some aspects of a monitoring system that have been violated in the last twenty years that we've <laughs> been playing with this whole monitoring concept. Um, and that the fundamental fundamental aspects of that is that you need to be truthful in what you observe. Right, so when you observe something uh, like in like a real engineering practice, you're going to get some sort of measure out of that, and that measurement is most likely going to have an error in it uh, due to its measurement technique, to the technique you use to measure. Um, you you're not measuring time precisely, you're not measuring values precisely. So understanding the value that you get in, the time you, it comes in, and the error around that is really important um, to to using that in further computation. Right, so we have this weird idea in monitoring that we take all this telemetry data in, and then we do math on it, and we get an answer out. And it's like if you ever talked to uh, like a, a, a civil engineer building a bit, building a bridge, and they said, you know, how much weight can I put on the bridge? And they gave you an exact weight to the kilogram. Right, the first thing you would do is not trust them at all. <laughs> right, there's just no possible way that you can be accurate without error bands. Um, so engineers need to realize that there are data quality issues coming in. Um, they need to have sound statistical methods for the way they analyze that data so that they know exactly how much confidence they can place in the answer. Um, and I think that that sort of approach to monitoring has been vacant, right? Mm -hmm. So we just, we haven't done that in our industry. I think that's kind of the next step where all the monitoring vendors are going to have to kind of suck it up and, and start treating this like a real engineering discipline. Mm. Well, talking about it from the end user point of view, James Turnbull came on the show not too long ago. He was talking about monitoring. He wrote a book recently called The Art of Monitoring, and he provided a, a very different framing for monitoring than I had thought of before. Because in the past, I had thought of monitoring as this thing where you just kind of watch a graph or you watch some things and you just wait for a disaster to happen and then you like troubleshoot it using the monitoring software because that's just how I had seen it used at other companies I've worked at. And I thought of monitoring as just this thing um, you know, where you're watching. But he, he classified this specific type of monitoring as reactive monitoring. Like if you're just watching your dashboard and kind of waiting for a disaster to happen, that's more of a reactive perspective. And what you really want is proactive monitoring, which is uh, which is slightly different depending on how you how you want to define it. But in in your uh, travels or your dealings with customers, how is monitoring viewed in a healthy organization? How do they use monitoring software? I think that uh, that that divide between reactive and proactive monitoring uh, is simply a line on on. The difference between known and unknown unknowns, <laughs> right? So, uh, and and that line is just at a different place and it shifts over time. So, so people in an organization um, typically use monitoring to observe the 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 behavior of software, right? And when software misbehaves, the monitoring system can can alert to that, uh, and then and corrections can be taken. And we're in a constant struggle struggle in our industry to codify that observability into a reaction inside the software product right so a software product understands when it needs to change its tunables or change its behavior based on feedback and that would be active monitoring so 
if I look at the, if I observe the system and the system can detect it's not behaving well and it knows what that pattern looks like and it knows how to modify itself, um, that's, that's proactive monitoring. But arguably, every time we have reactive monitoring, we have an opportunity to shift the learnings um, about the remediation of those issues into code and change that to later be reactive monitor, uh, proactive monitoring. So I, I just think that that, that line is, uh, uh, it's an important thing to realize, but it's not like we are now making the shift. Um, every piece of software that has any resilience in, in it has adopted those shifts over time. Okay, so uh, I'm a little bit curious about the product perspective, the business decision perspective uh, of starting Circonus in 2010. What was what was the landscape of monitoring tools like in 2010, and where was the gap? Why did you want to build Circonus? Yeah, I'd say that is different answer then than it is today. It's a very interesting path. It's been a long journey. Um, so in 2010, uh, the landscape was was uh, rapidly growing. Uh, the vast majority of monitoring from an operations perspective was red light, green light technology. So like uh, the Zabbixes and Nagios of the world that told you when things were good or bad. Um, and then in the in the velocity world, which was the web operations world, um, and people were monitoring systems performance and business outcomes, they realized it's not red or green, right? There's, there's a huge um, spectrum of performance and it impacts the bottom line. So you're really doing performance monitoring. And there was a, uh, someone coined a, a statement that slow is the new down. And that statement holds true on almost every system that in, in existence, right? So a database, uh, it doesn't work correctly when it doesn't meet its performance objectives just as well as when it loses data. Um, so what we found was that all of these different sections of companies, so like the ops, the software engineering, uh, customer service, every, every, all the way down to like finance and marketing and HR, they were taking metrics out of the organization and using different and sometimes less sound statistical techniques to make decisions off that data. And what we thought would, was, why don't we use all of the best practices from all of these different arenas and build one tool that can take in data from anywhere, just completely data agnostic um, or source agnostic, um, and then apply sound statistical processes so that so that everyone's looking and using the same techniques um, to to make business decisions based on input. Mm. And this is, I think, a shift that is happening all throughout the uh, business world where companies are becoming increasingly data-driven. You have more and more people at all areas of the company looking at dashboards, having data propagated to their eyeballs in some way, and then they're making decisions based on that, and it's um, it's, it's quite a precipitous shift. Um, you know, I think one way of classifying it, you could look at, you could talk about the DevOps movement to maybe just the um, increase of information flow throughout an organization. Um, I don't know, how, how much of this can be traced back to cloud services, like just maybe even just AWS? Do you think that was a um, an inciting incident or an inciting change in our world that ended up um, triggering this influx of, of data, this influx of software? 
Uh, I think that I think that all of these pieces were kindling on the fire. Um, overall, it was the the kind of the digitalization of business. So as we started to leverage technology and improved technology to do everything in the business, um, uh, people started to align in their needs and their and their methods. Um, so you know, operations people used to buy hardware and rack it up and deal with minutia of, of power and networking and cabling and things like that. Um, but they have more sophisticated tools to do that, even if you're doing your own like physical infrastructure. Um, and then on the operations side, uh, that merger with software engineering exposed operations uh, to kind of a new world of, of automation and, and methodology around managing what they do. Um, I like to think that when operations went into development and those two, two things collided, that uh, software engineers found a new respect and a new perspective on what it means to build operational systems. Because uh, there's a there's a very good reason that operations people historically hated developers, right? It's it's because it was their software that broke, and it was them that didn't build it in a way that was observable as to how it was breaking. Um, and when those two groups collided, uh, the the experiences and the techniques from both of them kind of melded in the best organizations. They melded together in a really really fascinating and productive way. But the, the concerning part about everybody being data-driven is that when you look in finance, still in a lot of organizations, finance uh, looks at data every day or every hour, sometimes every week, right? And then operations looks at data every every minute or every second. And software engineering tends to look at data every few minutes, but usually only around code launches. So you have these very different perspectives on what the available data set is, right? So the cadence is different in each organizational unit. And to me, that's really, really dangerous. It means that two people at the same moment in time are making different decisions because they don't have the same recency of data in front of them. Um, and then if you step one step back, a lot of them are acting on incorrect data and incorrect processes. So not only do they not have the right data all the time, uh, they actually have the wrong anti dirty data and bad answers out of it. So that's, that's a kind of an additional challenge. Okay, well, I want to talk a little bit more about engineering a monitoring system. Um, at the heart of monitoring are these events. You know, uh, these events aggregate into metrics, and you can build a dashboard with those metrics. In order to get those events or that log data or whatever, whatever your whatever type of data you're aggregating to ha- to build your source of truth, that you can build higher level things like visualizations or alerts based off of. In order to get those events or the log data or whatever you're looking at. That data is either pushed to or pulled from your monitoring system, and there is some debate around this push versus pull model. Why is there such a debate around push versus pull? Uh, why is there a debate? Um, Emacs versus Vim. Why is there a debate? I, I think that 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 engineers really like to argue with each other. Um, I, I hate it when their arguments are poorly founded, and in this particular case, I think that. Um, the push versus pull debate is is kind of oversimplifies how systems work and conflates these two different concepts. So um, a lot of people that think that you should only 
pull data because at, when you're pulling data, you can control the frequency at which you measure, me measure that data, right? So you know where your assets are, you know when you want to ask the question, um, you are in complete control of when you're asking that question. So if you want to see data second by second, you can ask second by second. If you want to see it minute by minute, you can ask minute by minute. So that's, that's one argument for, for pull. Um, and then the argument usually against pull that, or for push is that, well, I can't figure out where all my assets are. They come up and they come down. I don't want to have some sort of inventory management system there. I really just need to accept the data. Like everybody should just point their fire hose at me and I should just take care of things. Um, and, and the argument is from each of them is that the other one doesn't scale. So I think all of those are all false. Like none of those arguments really make sense. Um, the arguments of, of push versus pull often conflate the layer three problems with the layer seven problems uh, in the OSI model. So the idea that my system A should connect out to system B versus system B to system A, like the answer is it's a TCP connection. Once it's established, it goes in both directions. Um, even if it's UDP, if you're asking a question, one, people typically don't monitor with UDP because they care about their data too much. Like that the measurement actually has to get to the other end. It can't just get lost. So if it's TCP, once you have the connection established, it's bidirectional. It doesn't matter. So so the push versus pull argument there is kind of idiotic. It's like, do either one. It doesn't matter. Um, and then once the connection is established, you have this layer seven question of push versus pull is, should I solicit an answer to a question or should I receive unsolicited uh, answers to, to, to kind of previously stated questions. Should I ask what your CPU utilization is or should you just tell me uh, when you want to? And the answer to that is, well, it should kind of depend on the data. So yes is the answer. You should do both. You should allow for both of those things. So to me, the push versus pull should be both agnostic on layer three and layer seven. Uh, and the argument is kind of irrational. So at Circonus, do you just resolve the debate on a case-by-case -case basis? So we allow for both, right? So you, if you have an agent, so some agents, uh, SNMP is a great example of an agent that kind of does both of those things, right? So people always say their things are agentless, which it's like being serverless, like it doesn't run on a server somewhere. So a switch has an SNMP agent on it. That's how you ask SNMP questions of that switch. So you can ask it, how many octets did you push over this port? How much CPU utilization do you have on your core CPU? You can ask questions like that and get your answers back. However, SNMP also has a trap mechanism where SN, the, the agent itself on that box can send an unsolicited answer to a, to a question uh, to, to an upstream party, right? So even the oldest technologies out there like SNMP, which should, should by all means die, um, supported like, like this dual mode model. And when you need to ask a question, you ask a question. And when you don't know you should be asking a question, the, the agent on the other system says, hey, I have, I have important information you probably need to know right now. And it pushes that data. And, and at Circonus, we try to, try to treat all the protocols and all the products that we monitor in, in a very similar sort of way, where if, if, you, if you can ask questions, you should be allowed to. If the product has things to share without you asking questions, it should be allowed to. Um, at the end of the day, it's all data in a database, so we don't really care how we get it. So speaking of databases, you have built your own time series database at Circonus. Why didn't the pre-existing databases do the job at the time when you built that time series database? Um, I, I would argue they still don't do it. Um, uh, so one of the interesting challenges in distributed databases in, in general is agreement. 
Um, and agreement is very hard. Uh, so there are different algorithms. Paxos, you mentioned briefly uh, in, in the beginning of this conversation, uh, is a horribly complicated way to uh, achieve consensus, uh, often implemented incorrectly. Um, and there are some real world scenarios where you actually have to change the Paxos implementation to have it really work well. Um, so Raft, which came out, I guess, about three years ago now, um, that one's a much more simplified uh, consensus process. Uh, problem to solve right they, they, they just frame the problem in a different way they frame the solution in a, a different way it leads to much better implementations but like all computer science problems the best way to solve a problem is to not have it <laughs> so it's always easier to debug the lack of a solution to no problem than it is to, to, to debug some solution to some problem so the reason that you would need consensus is to deal with conflict resolution um, for database storing and by building a, a database that limits its operations to commutative operations, they also have to be idempotent commutative operations, right? So I can apply AAABC or BACCC and still get the same answer. Um, by solving, by, by limiting the operations to that, we don't need consensus algorithms. We don't have to pay for the, the problems that they induce. Uh, and when you're talking about data integrity and, and, and typical systems, those problems are well worth paying for. But since we don't have that problem, carrying the baggage of that solution forward into our product was, uh, would, would have been a tragic mistake. Um, so, so we built a much simpler system. And that, uh, that is the only reason that we elected to build it ourselves is we realized we could, we could build a database only on commutative operations and have something that just works better because it doesn't, doesn't have that baggage. So I did a series of shows recently about the Prometheus monitoring system and the, the the people I talked to about that system did say similar things. They said, you know, for monitoring databases, you don't need to do 2N plus 1 servers to keep your database consensus or whatever because it's just monitoring data and you, know, you can <laughs> i you disagree know, you... with that <laughs> oh okay <laughs> yeah yeah I, I so um we don't take any less care in the data we just we changed the academic problem we were solving to one that was much simpler with simpler solutions but when you're talking about monitoring data that's the data that operationally has you solve problems so it has to be available when you have a problem Right. So if you don't know when you're having a problem, then then like basically that results in it always needing to be up. Right. Your monitoring system has to be more available than the thing that it monitors. Otherwise, you're going to be left out in the field um, when you have an operational issue and you don't have your data. Like that's that's an insane uh, idea. I completely disagree with that statement um, from the Pr Prometheus guys. Uh, if you look at some of the stuff that they're thinking about and working on, I, I think that that, that, that statement may be um, uh, posturing because uh, I, I think that they're looking at alternative backends. They're, they're, they're looking at doing clustering. Um, I know that, that, that they're, they're mixed on that um, when they talk about it, but uh, can, you, can you imagine having a production outage and, and going to your monitoring system and not having your data? Like yeah, well, somebody should lose their job. Well, <laughs> I, so uh, first of all, I may I may have been taking inadequately taking words out of their mouth. I just remember um, one conversation I had, um, and it was I think I think he said like you know if you're, um, yeah, I th uh, what did he say exactly? I, but, so but, there were there were two. There's kind of two approaches that, at least in my conversations with them, 
there's two arguments. One, if you keep the system simple and small, it is unlikely to break. And that is a true statement, right? So their system is simple and small. And their argument for not adding clustering is because clustering is complicated and it, it, it's more likely to fail. And the short answer to that is that when you build a database the way we've built it um, and you don't require consensus uh, algorithms to, to, to make progress in the, in the system, um, that's just not true anymore. It just becomes more resilient. So the things that our customers have done to our database um, would appall every software engineer and operations engineer, and yet they continue to run and continue to 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 you know produce data in real time. So, the the n plus one thing is the the system will fail even if your software is perfect. It's not it's not running on a perfect piece of infrastructure, and the idea that that infrastructure can go down at any time, especially if you're in some place like Amazon or even if you're in a data center, the reliability of those comp components is not that high. Um, certainly not higher than your target reliability for your overall architecture. So you got to have two, <laughs> and that's that's kind of the way that works. So we learned that everywhere else in the in the architecture, and that equally applies to monitoring. Right. Um, so, real quick, do you know what database they use in Prometheus, or is it like choose your own? It's a custom. It's choose... a custom internal. Okay. Oh, it's oh, okay. Prometheus has its own database. Correct. I see, um, and. I can't. So, was it? Do they just they don't replicate at all, or they replicate only once? Uh, in the current form, they only write on a single system. They only so write. So they, they don't. Yes. Okay. So Prometheus is is a standalone single system monitoring tool. And you were saying, uh, at a minimum, you replicate uh, once. So you have you have two two copies of of the database. In our in our deployments, we have um, <laughs> we have. A 12 the data every piece of data that comes in sits on 12 spindles um and that's on six separate machines uh in two separate data centers that are far apart wow so so yeah so we can lose any any five machines anywhere uh and no one would ever ever notice wow um, okay. and that's that's per lane Interesting. So, is that the main difference between, or I mean, how, how does that contrast? How, what are the other elements of your time series database or your approach to to keeping data that that contrast with the other? I mean, there's all these time. There's so many time series databases today. There's InfluxDB. Um, I don't know. There's a bunch of other ones. I think I heard about one called recently called Dalmatian DB or something. Yep. Um, yep. So what what yeah. how do you, how do you differ from these? I I think that's 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 an enormous can of worms to open. Um, we all make different compromises. Um, so we we don't spend too much time comparing and contrasting to the other databases. But I think that that the, our our kind of core mission in our database is is pretty clear. Um, so one uh, resiliency and accuracy are the 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 two primary. Uh, objectives, right? So that it's kind of like the file systems of old, right? If you give me data, I promise you're going to get it back and I promise you it'll be correct. Um, and when you take that forward, um, that also applies to the math that we apply. So one of the big differences between our database and other databases is that the computational statistics engine that sits uh, on the database actually is under the hood. It's on site in every database node. So you're doing computation 
uh, directly off of off of disk effectively. You don't have to move it over the network to do your computation. Um, and that language is incredibly powerful. We we internally we use Luigit um, to to write all of our our stuff, and then we expose that uh, to the the customer through kind of a DSL that we call Cackle, which is the Circonus Analytics Query Language. Um, so we we move that computation in, and uh, it has to be fast. Um, it has to scale out well, um, and most importantly, it has to be accurate um, so that we're not lying to customers based on the data. And then the one other thing that is uh, incredibly unique to our database is that we treat uh, histograms, um, so full comprehensive distributions, as individual datum. So it's a data type. So you can have, as in most databases, you have a t you know the name of a, a stream, you've got a timestamp, and you've got a value. So over time, you just got all these timestamps and values. So we do support that, but that value in our system can be a comprehensive histogram with millions of samples in it as that value. And by storing that, we can take incredibly high volume data. So on a single stream, people will send us a million samples a second. Um, so for example, if you wanted to track the microseconds of latency of every disk IO in every spindle on every machine in your data center, we could handle that that volume without a problem. If you wanted to track the latency of context switches in nanoseconds on your CPU, talking millions a second, we can handle that stream because we represent those as histograms. Um, and that gives us some really, really interesting um, behavioral modeling tools. Uh, so we, we can use distribution analysis uh, to, to understand how many modes of operation a distribution has. Uh, we can post facto calculate percentiles. So this whole idea of 99th and 99.9th percentile, uh, those are very useful things, except that you might want 97 and a half, or you might want 50th or 75th. Um, and it turns out you might want any percentile. And if you store the histogram, you can calculate those percentiles after the fact. In fact, you can even turn that upside down, and instead of calculating percentiles, you can inverse that function and calculate what, what we call inverse percentiles, um, which is what percentage of the population of samples is over this speed or under this speed. Um, so, so by having that incredibly rich histogram data representation, um, we can do crazy, crazy cool behavioral modeling of, of systems. So getting a little bit back to basics, what is the typical way that... Maybe you can walk me through what happens when an event is produced on the, you know, some client of Circonus, how it gets ingested by the monitoring system, um, how it propagates to the database, uh, and then, you know, how it eventually makes its way to a dashboard somewhere. Um, so we have a, a three-tier system as opposed to a two-tier system, um, which is, uh, I think a good design. Um, so we have uh, the end node. So there is something doing something somewhere that you want to measure. Um, let's assume that it's a, a Cassandra node, right? So not the distributed database we use, but a very popular distributed database. So when you're running a node of Cassandra, um, there are a whole bunch of things that you might want to measure from that. So there's a tool that comes with it called Node Tool, and it, it, it'll output a whole bunch of different statistics around, you know, what the database is doing, how many transactions it's done, how much memory it's using, that sort of thing. Um, so that's one type of measurement. That's the type of measurement that you would typically pull out of it. Um, so you would ask it every 10 seconds or every one second or every minute for those statistics. Um, another thing that you might want to monitor that is what is the latency of every query that's being performed against this node? So you're doing 15,000 queries a second against the node. 
what is the microseconds of latency of each one of those queries? Right, so that you probably wouldn't pull because you don't know when they're happening. So you would actually submit, you know, 15,000 measurements per second. All of those streams, so all the, the memory utilization coming in at once a minute or once once every 10 seconds, and the, the, the latencies for every query that could be coming in at, you know, 10,000 or 100,000 a second, all of those streams hit what we call a broker. Um, and the broker is simply a store and forward engine for that telemetry data so that if there is something god forbid wrong with our service um, that you continue to store and forward that data so that that you will have accurate um, uh, kind of an accurate representation of how your system was behaving um, even if we're down so that store and forward engine will take uh, high frequency data and it will compress those into histogram representation and it takes uh, low frequency data and just kind of passes those through as individual sample points. That connects over SSL back to the cloud, the Sakonis cloud, um, and that data is ingested into uh, basically a, a, a strategy distribution node, if you will, that we have, we call it Stratcon. Um, and that node is responsible for doing two things. One of them is making sure that data lives forever in our, in our a time series database so it will push that data as it arrives back into snoth which is the the internal name for our database and it also pushes that over a message queue uh, we use fq uh, which is an open source uh, queuing system uh, and then that goes on to uh, stream processing for doing alerts uh, real-time alerts so that fans out. So as the, the data is produced on the end node, it goes to the broker, it's stored and forwarded up to the strategy node, and then it fans it into long-term permanent storage and the online analytics system that does alerting. Okay. Dashboards get a little bit more complicated because sometimes dashboards are feeding real-time data where they're reading off of that, uh, that message queue for the analytics streaming. Um, and then other times they're showing you uh, linear regressions or best fit regressions over time tells you, you know, for example, you're going to run out of disk space in seven weeks and a little dashboard widget for that. So that one wouldn't be handled in real time. Usually that one would go back to our, our data store and say, you know, statistics engine, you know, model, model this data over the last two weeks and tell me where it's going. So where along this path are there opportunities for machine learning i mean uh, i think circonis talks a lot about machine learning being a good opportunity for monitoring software so where where in that process do you bake in machine learning so machine learning in general um so we have a couple of different approaches to that most of them are statistical inference but um the the on the, so the data store itself, Snoth has a toolkit that allows for um, complex analysis, uh, including machine learning. Um, and all of the tools and techniques that are there um, can also be run in the online stream analysis system that, that we have. Uh, it works sort of similar to like Apache Spark, um, but they run the same language. So we can we write code once and it runs in both of those systems. So that today is where we apply machine learning. Um, so when we detect an anomaly or a behavioral change in a system, we emit um, we can emit uh, an event that says, "Hey, this is this is weird." What we don't do is event processing, event correlation, uh, and things like that. Um, so there's a huge opportunity for machine learning downstream from 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 those events uh, and trying to figure out what does this mean for the behavior of an organization with, with, you know, a million streams or 10 million or 50 million streams of data. Um, so there's, there's opportunity there as well, but we, we leave that to partner companies. 
So uh, another element that is, uh, I think, changing in our organizations, we've talked about a little bit about the the DevOps type of evolutions that we're going through. And this goes hand-in-hand hand with the continuous delivery conversation or continuous deployment, continuous integration, these pipelines that allow people to push code faster. And my sense is that monitoring plays quite an important role um, in this. At least one place where I see it is you have a continuous deployment pipeline and then at each stage of the continuous deployment pipeline, you have a battery of tests that it needs to pass. Um, but then at a certain point, you're putting your new deployment out into the wild or out into s- some subset of your uh, customer base, and you're just kind of letting it sit in production for a while and watching it and seeing if anything goes wrong. And at that point, it's more of a, a human-driven testing situation and you really need to have good monitoring software and i think part of that reason is driven by the fact that our our, you know our software is in in many contexts is so complex that you can't write unit tests for everything you just have to at a certain point you got to put it out into the wild and and watch it and and watch for metrics monitor it so how 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 do you build monitoring software around that that scenario, or what are the monitoring challenges that you look at in the CD pipeline environment? Well, I think you you articulated the the, the problem space really well. There is that with continual development or continual deployment, you even even when it's not CD in the in the euphoric dream of CD, even when it's just rapid, you know, when you're deploying more than once a day, maybe there are, there are people that deploy a hundred times a day. Um, so here at Sirconos, we we'll, we deploy up to maybe 15, 20 times per day. Um, the idea that you need to understand the behavior of your systems in production isn't a new one, right? Everybody needs to know how their systems behave. But in the old days, you would notice a system's behavior. You would track it back and say, hey, did you launch code three days ago? Because we've noticed this weird thing. Well, you can't have a conversation over a three-day time span when you've had 40 or 80 or 100 deploys in between those two things. So when you have continuous deployment that reduces the deployment cycle of changed code, it it, it necessarily reduces your ability to... Uh, it, it reduces the time you are allowed uh, in order to detect behavioral changes in software. So you have to be able to detect a behavioral change in software almost immediately after deployment. Otherwise, you risk conflating that, that, that behavioral change into the next deployment. So everything got faster. Monitoring too, I guess, is the, is the TLDR on that. Got it. Um, so what are the other monitoring requirements of your customers that you're seeing change? So the, the one that's most exciting, uh, I think, is this idea, and we've made this transition a long time. We didn't make this transition. Very happy to be present when it happened. But the idea of, of web monitoring, right? So this idea that in the old days, and I was just romanticizing the old days, someone else uh, a couple of days ago, the idea of like Keynote and Gomez, right? So back in you know 2000, if you wanted to know that your awesome website was up, you paid Keynote to test your website from like 20 locations around the world and it would send you this report and it would do it every 15 minutes. Um, and, and the idea of doing that today is just, I mean, not that you wouldn't 
do synthetic tests regularly to make sure things are working. But the idea that you wouldn't have empirical data of user observed uh, experience, right? So ROM, real user monitoring. There are real users using your website all the time and you have access to their experience. You know how fast it is. You know the latency to serve them. So the idea that you would ignore that data is is crazy talk now, right? Everyone does that. It's built into Google Analytics. You just turn on Google Analytics, you can see how fast your site is based on every single person that visits. What I'm really excited about is our people are starting to expect that from their software, right? So it used to be that you would make a Cassandra request to make sure it came back fast enough, but you have the same problem, right? You are measuring the latency of the one request that was completely unnecessary. It was your synthetic request. Yet you had 15,000 requests happen in the last second, each one of them measurable. Why aren't you measuring the actual experience of the component talking to Cassandra? Right. So just taking that real user monitoring and, of course, you're amplifying it by probably about 50 million uh, <laughs> um, times in its, in its data intensity. But you're taking that and saying, hey, I have real things happening all over the place in my architecture. I have network traffic. I have database requests. I have disk I.O. I have, you know, I'm touching my SSD and I can see the nanoseconds of latency of every one of those things. Why don't I use the same techniques? Why, why don't I record all of them and be able to look at them over time and understand behavioral changes? Um, I can see a code launch and have it look, uh, launch a new mode in my, in my database latencies, right? So that is, that is possible today. Um, and now we're seeing customers say, it's crazy for me not to have it. So there are also these other monitoring discussions. Um, well, I guess distributed tracing is not exactly monitoring. It's slightly different, but, um, as we use, I think it falls in the category. Falls into the word. category. Agreed. So as we use, well, you know, I think the w- one way that it doesn't fall into the category is that it's the sample rate. You know, you make kind of a, you make kind of a, a subjective decision, like how often am I going to sample my requests um, that are so. So for those who don't know, distributed tracing is this thing where maybe you've got a bunch of microservices or you've got some third-party services, and you you basically you you put a request ID um, that traces through the different microservice requests as they are um, calling one another, so that if you have some uh, some large amount of latency uh, at the top level of your request, you can identify where in the request chain of your different microservices the biggest portion of latency is coming from, or you can figure out problems that are occurring in that request chain. But oftentimes, it's not you're not evaluating every single uh, request. There is some subjectivity to how often you're sampling. Um, we had a show about distributed tracing recently, and that was the one thing, the, the biggest thing that she distinguished between monitoring and, and tracing is monitoring, you're kind of tracking everything. Distributed tracing, you're more getting a sample. Um, I, I think that, the, that there is a, a little bit more collision than, than a lot of people first assume. Um, so, for example, most monitoring tools, when they look at, at, at disk I.O., they'll take the average disk I.O. over the last 10 seconds and report that. So there's a great example of someone taking a surrogate statistic that certainly doesn't represent the, the 50,000 disk I.O.ps you did in those 10 seconds. 
right? So, so even in monitoring, there's a lot of sloppy monitoring, and I think a lot of that's going to go away soon. Um, but, but that's the that's the case. And and with distributed tracing tools, a lot of the APM tools out there kind of provide some element of distributed tracing. Um, and and I agree completely that the sample rate becomes a, a significant problem in really understanding the behavior of the system. Uh, but I, I'm very optimistic about the the open tracing stuff uh, and Zipkin, for example. Um, our entire stack is instrumented um, from in, from from user request point of view, all the way down into the to the the distributed database. We can see Zipkin traces for all of that, which is like an open tracing uh, standard trace. Uh, so we can see the request start. We can see all of the sub requests. I can see the Postgres queries. I can see the memcache gets. I can see all of that um, in a, in a trace. And what we found by doing a very optimized implementation of that is that we can turn on 100% tracing and it doesn't have a noticeable impact on performance of the system. So we can trace every single call that comes into the system. The problem is, is we can't store it, <laughs> right? So most of that ends up being, you know, goes into a, a system and we store it for maybe 24 hours and then we throw it all away um, just because it's very hard today to get a return on that investment cost more to store it than it does uh, uh then then we get out of it on as a benefit so um last question uh the, one interesting question on monitoring that i've heard recently is the question of monitoring serverless because obviously there's this discussion around serverless architectures where you basically the only thing you 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 know you, you submit some program or some sequence of code to this serverless thing like uh, Amazon the Lambda. Borg. Huh? Yes. The Borg. The Borg, yes. right. And it schedules your code and it maybe spins up some ephemeral container and then spins it down as soon as your your thing is done or it just leaves it going for a while for other similar requests. But there are challenges related to the opacity of that uh, that model. So... It, it, and and at the same time, people are talking about serverless is going to be the future or whatever. What are the challenges? Or, or, you agree? Okay, you think it is the future? I think it is. I think it is. Um, I think that uh, when we stopped running, there are very few users today, especially in Amazon, where you actually have access to understand what your hardware is doing. So the idea that you care what your VM instance is doing or the Docker container on there has been a, a, a layered cake of lies on what you've been doing for a long time. And I think that, uh, not that it's not been useful, but it's sort of counterproductive. Um, and serverless actually forces you right beyond that point where you realize, actually, I'm, I, I don't care where this is running, and I never should have. I actually should have cared on what the quality of service I was delivering from the code was. So it gets back to this, I need to be monitoring the service. I want to look at the latency of every call into this architecture. And I actually wanted to do that on containers and I wanted to do that in VMs and I wanted to do that on hardware. And when we were back at the hardware realm, it actually made sense to really monitor that hardware well as too, right? Because we were stuck on it. <laughs> um, and, and if we had a problem, we could associate it to that hardware and get it repaired or get our processes moved. But, but as we go into serverless, it really becomes clear that that we really only care about the quality of the service being delivered. Um, so we can focus the monitoring where it belongs. So I, I'm super excited. I think that's a really great way to do it. And it ends up being a lot less expensive to monitor things that way. All right. Well, uh, Theo, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate you coming on and 
Thanks. It's It's been a pleasure discussing how to build monitoring software and the kinds of challenges that you're dealing with at Circonus. Excellent. Thank you very much. O'Reilly is hosting Bot Day, a conference in San Francisco on October 19th, 2016, that offers the strategic and technical insight that you need to start implementing AI-driven conversational interfaces that can talk to your customers, make your employees more productive, and streamline your business. Check out Bot Day from O'Reilly, coming October 19th, 2016.